Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. This is that week during the month when we listen to a lecture from Beeson Divinity School. And our lecturer today is Pastor Mark Jeske. Now, I had never met Mark Jeske before, but I'd seen him on television. He has a, a nationwide television ministry entitled Time of Grace. He's a marvelous communicator, and he's a wonderful pastor. He's the pastor of St. Marcus Lutheran Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's a member of a denomination known as the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. A wonderful, uh, deep rootedness in the Reformation, but Pastor Jeske has a vision for communicating the gospel that Martin Luther articulated so well in the 16th century into the 21st century. And so the title of this lecture, it might put you off a little bit. It did me when I first heard it. It's entitled, I Hate Preaching. Can we talk? Well, you're going to hear how he explains that title. And he doesn't really hate preaching. He's a marvelous preacher himself. But he's trying to get us to stand back and look at some of the stereotypes of preaching that we bring to this very important office in the life of the church. I think you're going to be very engaged by what he says and how he says it. This was presented as a part of the William E. Conger, Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching here at Beeson Divinity School in 2013. So let's go into Hodges Chapel and listen to our friend, Pastor Mark Jeske. I hate preaching. Can we talk? Thank you so much, and good morning, everybody. Good to see you again. What a beautiful day. Isn't it wonderful? I don't know what you're all shivering about. I had the car window down driving over here. It feels feels great. Just a, just a beautiful spring day where I come from. I also would like to apologize for uh, being provocative yet again, and I don't mean to be insulting by calling this little talk, I hate preaching, because I know, especially here in the South, that's such a, an esteemed word. And some of you are very proud to be preachers. Others of you aspire to be a preacher. President Lyndon Johnson used to introduce his pastor, of whom he was very proud. He used to go take him around his barbecues at the ranch and say, this is my preacher. And he was so proud of the man, and it was such an affectionate term. And so I appear to be insulting it, and I don't want to be insulting. But I do personally, and I'm not trying to change your mind about this, but I would like to tell you that I personally can't stand the word and refuse to use it. Both in my congregation, you won't see the word in the service programs that we hand out to our attenders. And I have sent the word out in the 12 people who work for our television ministry for Time of Grace that if I hear them use the word preach or sermon, they're going to be let go. So the word has gotten out. And I, I would like to tell you a little bit why I think that, because I think it has made me a better communicator. And perhaps as you think about these things, it might make you a better communicator as well. The first reason I don't like it is because in popular parlance, in the way that normal people use the word, 
Preaching is something done only by the few, by the pencil necks who went all the way through grad school, who have their head up in the stars and in the sky and in the ether. They are usually better dressed, or even in my tribe, we get to wear robes or have to wear robes. And you stand up here in the holy ground, up in the front, the no man's land for lay people. You stand behind this wooden thing, and it becomes a sort of stilted formality that is not for lay people. And that, that concept doesn't exist in the Bible, does it? It really doesn't. There are two main words for what, what is often, and I think unfortunately, translated preach, uh, preach the gospel. One is curiso, which means to be a herald. It means to do nothing else than to announce the arrival of somebody really important. You don't have to have a graduate degree in theology to be a herald, do you? If, if we say that the mission of the church is to preach the gospel, most of the lay people in my congregation would think, well, then, Pastor, you ought to go do that, and we'll give you a little money to pay for you, and you can um, do this full time. Or if you're like St. Paul, you... When you're planting a church, you might have to work a side job flipping burgers or working in, in canvas as a tent maker for a while. But ultimately, preach the gospel means we'll pay money so that you can go do that. And there is no distinction in the urgency of gospel proclamation, of heralding, of, of being a kyrix, uh, of doing your kyrisoing. It's not my job, it's our job. And a second word that's often used is oiangelizomai, which is a Greek word that means just telling good news to people. That is, preach is not a good translation. Do you want to know what my, and the people with whom I live, do you know how preach is used from Monday till Saturday night? I want you to think about how preach and sermon are used in the rest of people's lives. Not, ignore Sunday morning, but just from Monday to Saturday. Okay, I need to find, uh, where are the married men in this room? Could you, could you d reveal yourselves to me, the married men? Do you, do you want a sermon from your wife? Yes or no? No, no you don't. No you don't at all. Um, as you think about being a teenager, do any of you, can, can you still remember what it's like to be a teenager? And some of you, those memories have faded severely, but others of you can still remember. Do you want your father to preach to you? No, you don't. In fact, one of Madonna's first songs, uh, starting her on her amazing career, was, Papa, don't preach. Talk to me, but don't Preach. Remember that? Any Madonna fan? No, don't, you don't want to admit being a Madonna fan here, do you? No, sorry, that was the wrong question. I, I apologize for that. Here's how dictionaries define sermon or preaching. The first one is always to deliver a message in a worship setting, but the second meaning is, what is preaching? To nag, scold, or go on in a windy manner. What is sermon from Monday to Saturday. I got a sermon from my boss yesterday. Is that, that going to be a good thing? No. When you get a sermon from your boss, it means there's a finger wagging, a scolding coming, you've done something bad, bad dog, bad dog. 
If you got a sermon from your wife, it means she's really upset with you and you are getting it and it's negative. Usually it goes on far longer than necessary, right? Let's be honest. These, this is the flavor that these two words have from Monday to Saturday. And I will also confess to you that I personally am either ADD or ADHD. I'm a fidgeter in church. I'm, I can hardly keep my body still. I, I would be thankful to worship here because there's visual stimulation. And if enough of it isn't coming from the front, I can look at the pictures and I can count how many uh, rectangular insets are in that coffered uh, dome right here. And I can, I can uh, look at the Corinthian capitals on the arches and because I fidget, I just like I'm, I'm vibrating. I'm hungry for data, and I have suffered through so many sermons because the people were trying to be somebody they weren't. They were trying to sound important. They were trying to preach, and I'm thinking, stop preaching. Just talk to me. Tell me about the word. How much time have you put into the word? How much drilling have you done? What came up the borehole from your work? Even if it's a little discombobulated, what have you learned? How has your life been changed by your collision with the word of God? The word of God always changes something if you're paying attention. What changed in you, reverend, or whoever is doing the talking? What happened? Tell me in regular words. Don't try to impress me with how smart you are. Don't use big words that aren't in your normal vocabulary. You can slip them in now and then if they're appropriate or you want to teach, uh, you want to expand people's vocabulary a little bit. But don't try to impress me that you went to graduate school. I'm not impressed by that. I want to know how have you been changed. I want to know what you've learned. Maybe you can give me something to learn. I want you to broaden the, the, my mind, make my mind a little wider after having spent some time with you. Don't waste my time. Don't preach at me. I don't, I don't want to hear a harangue. I don't want to hear a scolding. I don't want negativity. I want, to, I want you to um, curiso me. I want, to, I want you to herald something. I want you to announce what God's up to, a wigot moment, W-I-G-U-T. What is God up to? I want you to oi angelizomai me. I want you to share good news with me. But I, it only makes sense if it's been filtered through your brain and heart and life. I don't want to hear a lecture. Don't lecture to me. I want to encounter God through what you're doing. And so that, that's my personal hang-up. Now, having said all that, you can ignore all that. You can still use the word. I'm fine with that. Just... Just think about a few things. In honor of uh, Brother Martin up here, and I see uh, he's also right above me, which is pretty cool. If he were alive and could spit, he could drill me right in the top of the head with, <laughs> with his loogie. And I, uh, I'm really honored to be standing right underneath him. In honor of him, I have uh, 9.5 theses. <laughs> <laughs> of how to show respect to the people who will be listening to you. I hope that you tell good news and herald 
even if you're not ordained. I, ho I hope you also do it from Monday through Saturday. I hope there's no, no trade-off. In fact, I hope the tone of your voice sounds the same in your Jesus talk from Monday through Saturday as it, if you get to do any Jesus talk on Sunday. Mark Twain once said, I trust no man who changes his tone of voice when he prays. And uh, my amen to that, Mark Twain, uh, amen to that. Uh, it sets up a phoniness. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a televangelist now, and mostly, and only a little bit of a parish pastor anymore. And my tribe of televangelists is really nothing to be proud of. I'm, I hate most of the stuff I see on TV, honestly. I don't know why anybody would watch me, because if they lump me together with with that horrible stuff, all the money-grubbing and the fake prosperity theology just makes my stomach turn. Um, our kid's school teacher, my youngest kid's school teacher, called us up and said, I'm so sorry to hear about all the trouble in your family, because they had been asking what were what, what does your daddy do? What, what are the professions or jobs that your family holds? And my kid told the teacher that I was a drug dealer, and she was so shocked and called my wife to commiserate and asked if there was anything she could do. And, well, the only drugs I peddle are trying to find Excedrin now because you can't get it. I mean, for some reason, Excedrin's off the market. That's the only drug that I have anything to do with. So I asked Mike, why did you tell your teacher that I was a drug dealer. And he said, well, I didn't want to tell her you were a televangelist. <laughs> well, here's, here's some thoughts that I, I put out to you to make the most of your opportunities. And for those of you especially who are now in a preaching situation or, or you will be, you aspire to, or any time you are able to witness to more than one-on-one, -on -one, one at a time. Here are some things that I've learned, some, some convictions that I have. One is that when you're preparing a, a longer address, often it starts as a written document, a literary document. In fact, there's probably no other way to train people how to be good communicators and to know what it is they're going to say. You have to, as, as the faculty here, I really resonate with you. I, I wouldn't want your job for anything. Uh, because it's so hard, and your raw material is so raw. It was my joyful task to supervise six interns for a stretch of six years. And the rules were that um, they were allowed to speak and worship once a month. That's about all they could handle. They, they weren't trusted to go any faster than that because they want to learn their craft slowly, and that's good, good. But it meant I had to read their work, and it was so bad. I get hardly stand it. It's terrible. And you guys have to do that every day. I just, my heart just really hurts for you. Preparing a written document is, is a necessity, at least at the beginning. You need to practice the skills of an introduction. You, you can't just come in and say, in our text for today, the Apostle Paul would have us see, because nobody's brain is there. You've got to... Guys, you... Your wife doesn't like it when you come home, put your arm around her, and then start getting, having a very aggressive hug, and you want to just drag her upstairs by the hair. You know, women don't like that, do they? I, if, I haven't found any. They want to be romanced a little bit. Talk pretty to me a little. And, 
and let's let's talk a little and sit by me on the couch and hold my hand for a while and let's let's kind of you know it's, there's a word for that I can't say in this chapel but you 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 need to do that with people and you need to study your craft of building the arc of it that you lead up that you you tell stories you engage people you drill down you get to your point and then there should be a very clear proposition of some kind that is going to be your change agenda. Something has to change. What changed in me as I read and studied this word? What do I hope it changes in you? Really, only two kinds of changes can happen. You are going to change people's attitude, change their, you will help their faith grow, or you're going to change something in the way they live. Both are appropriate targets. But because um, in the training of preachers, we start with, so often, start with written documents. They then think they must deliver it pretty much the way they wrote it. And so some people try to memorize it. But you can smell that, can't you, when someone is mentally reading what is essentially a literary document? It sounds wooden. It's not, there's no interaction. There's no flex. It's, though, it's as though you're not even there. It would sound exactly the same if the place was empty and the, and the person was just talking to the back wall. There's no humanity in it because it's a recitation. You're hearing somebody reciting a speech. Or worse, they read it to you. Have you ever sat through a, a Sunday message that someone has simply read to you? I, I don't I don't want to know if you have because maybe your pastor's here and maybe he's the one doing it. Uh, I think that's a horrible abuse. And so what I suggest to you is e even if you are using writing to get your ideas down, get them into your heart, percolate it through your life, what you've gone through that week, and then let it come out. But if you can't remember it enough to say it right to people that you love, then it's too complicated, and you're, you're lecturing. And I, I know you're here for a lecture, but I, I don't think of this as a lecture. I hope you don't feel being lectured to. I hope you think of this as a little dialogue, and we'll have a little time for Q&A at the end. But I, wanna, I, I look at your face. I want to see your faces. If you're mentally reading a document, or you've got to keep track, I'm on page one now, and I'm on page two, then I'm, I'm looking at that. I'm only pretending to look at you. I'm looking at the top of your head, but I'm not looking at your eyes. I can't, I'm not looking, I'm not really looking at your face or your mouth. Like, what's happening with you right now? I want to, I want to, this is just you and me. I want to connect. You can't connect if you are reciting a written document. So the writing stuff you do in preparation, I'd suggest to you, let that only be preliminary, but where you want to end up is an oral presentation. It's talk, not writing. One of the, the ways I can know that's different is when I read transcriptions of things that I have said. Every message now, of course, we videotape for television. And so I unfortunately get to read the transcript. It's abominable as literature. You want to know how bad it is? You probably have never put yourself through that exercise. But this is something you may have done. Have you ever come into the room where somebody's got an, an iPod or something and got the earbuds on and is singing? Yes? It's pretty ugly, isn't it? 
because they're blasting, they're singing away, not realizing that their naked voice is pretty out of tune and pretty ugly. But they don't know because they're into it. When If you would give an oral talk to someone and then see the transcript of it with all of the you know, the little things in it, the little hesitancies, the little stammers and everything like that. It's terrible reading. It's because the two... But if you saw a video of it, you wouldn't even notice. It would look natural. But you are preparing when you interact with people. I want you to encourage you to build an oral spoken piece, not a polished written essay. You're not going to read or deliver an essay to people. It needs to have the vitality of just you and me. And it's coming out of my heart and I'm talking to you. It's urgent that you decide that you like the people you're talking to because they'll smell it. People and dogs smell fear. They smell if you think you're smarter than they are. They can smell it if you think you're better than they are. They smell it if you think they're dumb. They will smell it right away, and they will not listen to you. People who come to church where you may have the honor to speak to them are giving you a half hour of their life. they got a bazillion other things to do, and they're going to trust you with a precious half hour of their time. It might have been worth it for the half hour of worship, but now they're going to give you another half hour. What an honor they're going to give you. How I adore our lay people who trust me enough to spend that time in sitting still and being quiet and letting me talk. Do you know how hard that is? I do it so poorly. I'm a terrible listener because I'm too vain and stubborn to let go of my, train of, my own train of thought. To, to be a happy worshiper in a church Bible study, which we call sermons, you and I'm asking of this of you right now. I'm asking you to get out of the engine compartment of the train and just sit in the passenger seats and let me drive. What an honor. When you agree to do that, you so honor me. I must work really hard. And that's my second thesis, is to invest heavily in this. It is the most important thing for all of you who are now pastors or will become pastors. I, I put out to you that it is the most important thing that you will do in your week. Everything has importance, but this is the most because you get the most people together in the shortest amount of time. And I believe that a healthy congregation, all of the things that it does, whether it's stewardship, fundraising, whether it's evangelism and outreach, whether it's um, mercy ministries and acts and service of love into the community or among the members, whether it's a further Bible study, whether it's the teaching of children or the teaching of adults, or whether it's fellowship ministries of the working on the glue that holds the whole group together, or whether it's administration, all those lines come together in your worship and Bible study time when you're all together. And that deserves your very best work every week especially when you're starting out. And I'll talk to the people who will, especially now, who will be graduating from here, hoping to receive their positions. Especially when you're starting out, 
lavish time on that. It is so deserving of it. I still have all the notes that I took on all my Bible studies since I've started in 1980. They're all numbered. There's a little red number up in the upper corner, and I've got index cards. I go back so far. This is before computers. It would be a lot easier if it was all digitized. Now I know that. You guys will have better ways of doing it. But the point is I can pull out now a Bible study on almost every preachable text in the whole Bible, and I've been there before, and now I can uh, check out some of the notes, and you get more efficient. As, as you get older, your life will go faster, and more burdens will be put on you. When you're a rookie pastor, nobody expects much out of you, which is perfect. It's awesome. So s lavish that time uh, drilling into the Word. So that's my second thesis. First one was, remember, it's an oral presentation, not written. Second one is, invest heavily. Third one, um, the messages I like best that I have profited the most from and a, a style which I've determined to imitate is to take a chunk of Scripture and stick to it and, and drill down and just stay with that. The ones that get me confused are where somebody starts with an abstraction like, I want to talk to you today about blah, 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 and then simply pull stuff from all over the place. God can get some wonderful teaching done in that way, but I suggest to you it's better if you take a chunk, not, and not just one verse. One verse gives you too much latitude to inject too much of yourself into it. Remember, you're, you're a, a Carix, you're a herald. You are announcing what God has said, who he is, and what he's done not primarily offering your political commentary on everything. And I'd start with a chunk, like a paragraph, and then drill all the way down. Stay at it until you feel you've hit bottom. Let there be no puzzles, or even when you hit the puzzles, that you can't explain. At least you can say, this is an inexplicable mystery of God, and just leave it at that. But you've gotten all the way down. You have backtracked and researched everything that you can, and then you are informed on it, and you will lay that out. And people can have their Bibles open, and they know where you are. When you're jumping all over the place, the sword drill veterans can stay with you, but you will leave in the dust most people from the streets of Birmingham. They can't stay with that. So then they passively just look at you. But I, th I would suggest to you the value of picking one chunk of Scripture and staying with it is that even the rookies, even the pre-Christians who are given a look at you, um, can hold, you can get them into their Bible and start teaching Bible literacy by having them experience paging around, finding where you are, and actually reading the Bible and going, aha, I get this. I could do this. I could read this myself. And, uh, and the twin concept to go with that is I would suggest to you, without necessarily dumbing things down, that you are mindful first of your visitors and guests and unsaved or whoever has washed in off the street, whatever for whatever reason, willing or unwilling, and have them in mind first. I'm first talking to you. You're starving. You might be dying. It's like triage, isn't it? You can, you'll have stuff to put out there. I have no fear, No, none of my... 30, 40, and 50, and 60-year-long members have ever complained to me that they weren't getting enough food. But I think what's really important is that we, we stay away from the jargon and make things plain and simple enough so that the people who are just walking in, who are, are new to the faith, 
that this will make sense to them without jargon, without a lot of lingo. It is part of the adventure I'm on in my life that God has decided is that I serve now as a director for a Christian financial company. And uh, I'm, I'm not an accountant, I'm not an actuary, I'm not a lawyer. And sitting in on those board meetings, I have never felt, at least for the first year, I have never felt like such a child and an idiot of hearing the lingo fly around. It's a whole sub-dialect of English that I had to learn. And this would be a typical sentence that you would hear. Well, the RPAs of the VAs are suffering from interest rate compression, and so uh, we are going to have to um, adjust the risk. You have no idea what I just said. I had no idea what they were talking about. I had to study really, really hard. I was motivated to learn the lingo. But you may not have 30 years to work with someone and get them to learn Christian lingo. So I would suggest to you that you love your people, but love the guests and the visitors and the strays. After all, our Lord Jesus had quite a heart for those, didn't he? So that's one of the values, I think, of picking one chunk of Scripture and, and staying with it so that you get all the way down to the bottom and it, it's not shallow. Tell people something that they didn't know before. Give them something uh, to stretch their brains. Number four, and this is related to it, every paragraph of God's Word has a context. It has connectors in it that put it in time, that put it in human in the human story. Maybe it's a geographical reference. Maybe it's an etymology of an important word. Maybe it's a word that has one meaning in the Bible and a different meaning in their everyday life. Now, I, having said my, this warning about jargon and being careful of slinging around words like justification and sanctification as though that proves that you went to the seminary, uh, I don't generally use those words unless they come up in a text or unless I make a big point of defining it for people. I just don't want to assume that they all know what that is. Uh, I, you've probably heard the stories that people say they prefer the children's message in a service to the grown-up message. It's because they can get it, because it's clear. It goes right from A to B, and they, they get it. And a lot of times their pastors lose them. They get lost in the woods as the guy's meandering around, and they never know what's the point. Honest, I don't mean to badmouth us pastors, but um, we should not assume that everybody's getting what we're trying to say. And there is flavor of things that happened. Um, Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Do you know who Caesar Augustus is? If you, when you, if you are going to speak on the Christmas message and you're going to speak on Luke 2, I suggest to you that you find out who was Caesar Augustus. What was his significance? How did God use that person to advance his plan of salvation? Well, Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Where is Syria? Study the geography. What's the point of mentioning Syria? What does that have to do with the Christmas message? It does have a point. God put it there. Have you figured it out? What is the point? Who's Quirinius? And why would he be important to be mentioned? You need to know that because it's in your text. Drill down and find out the etymologies. If you choose to use a word like grace, study words like that and don't just sling it out there assuming 
that everybody knows what you're talking about. Because from Monday to Saturday, what does grace mean? It means you move beautifully. You dance divinely. That's what grace, graceful means. It means you're suave. It means you know what to do and what to say. If, if you say, that, what, a, what a graceful person. She's so full of grace. It means she speaks appropriately. She's got kind things to say. You like to be around her because it just flows. Those are all sweet things, but that's not what the Bible means. So if you're going to use the word grace, that has a meaning in religious talk different from the world where your people live in, then define it. Tell What does grace really mean? Don't, don't ever assume that. Grace means that God chose to love the unlovable. Romans, in Romans, uh, Paul writes that grace means that God forgives, he justifies the wicked. That's what grace is, that he justifies the wicked. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is grace. It means God went first and it's 100% done. Never, never assume. You know, there is so much flavor in the Bible the Hebrew names, for instance, every Hebrew name means something. Noah, for instance, and in my personal devotional reading this morning, I was reading Genesis 6 and 7. And when Noah was born, his parents called him Noah because he will be such a comfort to us. That's what his name means, comfort. Isaiah chapter 40, the beginning of the great second half of Isaiah, the gospel of the Old Testament. Starts out, Nahumu, Nahumu, comfort, comfort my people. Noah was given to the world and given to his family to bring comfort. He, he was the rescuer. Um, the geography, study things. Right uh, two weeks ago, I spoke on Paul's uh, visit, his missionary visit to Pisidian Antioch. And um, I, I knew roughly where it was in what is today Turkey. This is, of course, a thousand years before the Turks got there. It's very hard to talk about that part of the world to people who are not geography nerds because you don't know what to call it. If you call it Turkey, that's a little bit of a misnomer because the Turks weren't there yet. They weren't going to arrive in, in west-central Anatolia in Asia Minor for another thousand years. But I decided, um, you know, it would be really good to do a Google Earth. And I, I just see, saw if I could track it down. And suddenly everything started making some interesting sense. Here's the ruins of Antakya, the, the Turks call it today. You can see from the air where the ruins are. Much of Turkey's mountainous, and to get to it, you have to go through some narrow gates. That in Turkey, they're called gates, these narrow mountain valleys where you can slip through and get from one place to another. And Paul landed in the port and went to Antioch, which sat on the interstate. It was on the Ignatian Highway, the Ignatian Interstate. So the east-west and north-south routes had a crossroads there, and that's where this military outpost was. It it had Jewish people in it who had gone there for perhaps to escape persecution or to find commercial or business uh, opportunities. There, there were Greeks there. There were people who were pre-Greek. The ancient kingdom of Phrygia was not truly Greek, although they came to adopt the Greek language. And it was a Roman colonia. The emperors would seize land 
and then they would settle their military veterans there. The pay of the Roman legionaries was not very good, but if you stayed alive, if you didn't get killed, there was a sweet value proposition. You would share in all the plunder every time you won a victory. You got to help yourself to the other guy's stuff. But best of all, they had a sweet retirement benefit. If you didn't get killed, you and your family would get a free farm if you would live on it and farm it. And a lot of Roman um, soldiers became citizens and landholders in that way, which gave you great status. So there's a, there are Latin-speaking Romans also in Antioch. Same in Corinth. Corinth was a Roman colonia also. But anyway, as you look at Antioch, just just... I just wanted to see what does the topography look like. I've never been blessed to go there myself, but I went through Google and looked at it from the air. And unlike much of that part of Turkey, there's a gigantic plain that was great for farming. Also, there are mountains around there that Philip of Macedon realized had gold in them, and he was taking a thousand talents of gold out of those mountains. But like Duluth, Minnesota, the mines were played out, and like Red Mountain here. I don't think there's too much iron ore mining going on in Birmingham anymore, is there? The mines are played out, and Philippi, as a result, was down on its luck. It's like Duluth and Superior, uh, Wisconsin today, which used to be the center of the iron ore trade in the Midwest. Those two communities are greatly reduced in their circumstances, and so was Philippi. But see, you wouldn't know that if you didn't pay a little attention. Also, that great big plane made for an awesome battlefield. It's very hard to fight large-scale military battles in Turkey because it's so mountainous and it's like this big upland. But Philippi, the plain of Philippi, was the place where Brutus and Cassius met their end, the assassins of Julius Caesar. So everybody knew that at that time. That had only happened a generation earlier. Everybody knew this was the site of the great battle of the nations, which decided the future of the Roman Empire. And that's where Paul went. He went uh, to a place where there was a great diversity of people, where there was an on the interstate, where there was a lot of moving and back and forth. Little things like that. Or let me give you one more example. When Paul went to Athens, he went and stood on Mars Hill. Now, if you were in a hurry or you were doing a slop job of talking people through the meeting on Mars Hill, you would just say, well, Mars Hill, whatever. Um, but if you study the layout of ancient Athens, those places can be pinpointed. And the hill called Mars Hill, uh, the, uh, where the Agora was, the open-air marketplace, which was the place of discussion of ideas, they, they, were, they, li they were like New Yorkers. New Yorkers have apartments so small that people want to be outside. They want to be in public places. New York's full of parks and squares and, and delis and coffee shops and bars where people go to get out of their tiny apartments. They, they live outdoors. They don't live in McMansions. They, there's not enough space. They get out. And the Greeks in a warmer Mediterranean land got out. And so the, the Agora was the place where people went to talk. They went to hang out with their friends and sit around and exchange ideas and learn things. They're in the days before newspapers, that's how you learned what was going on in the world. When Paul said, I see that you are very religious, do you know what was about a, a one-wood golf shot, a one-wood driver shot away? The Parthenon. The Parthenon Hill, which is the icon of Greece today, it's the most obvious visible symbol of the entire land of Greece is the Parthenon. A little saddle of land connects that with Mars Hill. 
That was probably about as far away as like from one of these campus buildings to another. That's how close they are. When he said, I see you're very religious, his right hand might have been pointing to the statue of Athena in the Parthenon. I think that's interesting. I think you should know that stuff. Uh, number five, if you're, keeping, if you're keeping track, here they are. I'll give you a little review so I didn't lose you in the, in the woods. Uh, you're, you're preparing an oral presentation. Secondly, to invest heavily of your time. Third, pick a text and stick with it. The fourth, acquire the flavor from the geography and the words and the people and the etymologies and meanings of their names. Um, a fifth one is uh, to learn your material so well that you don't need a lot of notes or a manuscript so that you can look in people's faces and talk eye to eye. Every time someone you're trying to listen to looks down, it's like an interruption. It breaks the magic. Do you notice that? Um, could I now check for married women here? Could you, if you're a married woman, could you raise your hand? Okay, you've learned a few things by now about communicating with men, haven't you? It's not the same as communicating with women, is it? No. What have you learned about if you have messages, important messages to deliver to your husband? What have you learned? Make sure he's looking at you. Men have the capacity to see the world through a soda straw, like a pipe. This is how we see the world. We're capable of enormous concentration. I predict that the great inventors of the world will almost always be men because of our ability to screen out distractions and, and uh, do this. However, what that means is we don't multitask very well. Uh, for those of you who are, might be married someday, I offer a little tip. Do not ever address any meaningful conversation to a male when the TV is on. When he's, or if he's watching it, it's even worse. Until his head swivels and until he presses mute, you do not have his attention. Faces matter. People tell me sometimes, um, you know, I don't always have to look at the speaker. And that sounds real pious. And you might have gotten away with that little lie also, but that, it's baloney. The minute you break off the visual, your mind will start wandering away. And I put it to you that every time you look away from the people you're delivering your message to, it's a snip, and you have to then go after them again and get them back. It, um, I wasn't sure yesterday which chapel we were going to be in, because when I arrived on campus, I realized there are two. So I got to sit in at the the Reed Chapel, I got to see the one that the majority of the students go to and catch some of their chapel service. It was very interesting. I found it fascinating. A woman was talking about her experience of being a Christian in the world of media in, in Hollywood and Burbank and L.A. And I found it interesting, but um, about half of the kids in the back three rows didn't. You know how I knew that? They were had found something more compelling in their smartphones. And I don't blame them. I'm not, I'm not angry with them. But I think that if you want to keep the people, even in the back row, and I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the four of you back there. I'm looking at you right now. Yes, I am. I'm looking at you. How will I know if you're interested in what I'm saying if I'm not looking in your face? I look at your face. 
And I suggest also to you that magic happens because when, you're, when you get this, when you get it right, the people will feel like everyone else drops away and it's just you and the speaker. It's just two people in the room, not 130. It's just two. It's just you and me. And, and it's going back and forth. And everything else, time stops, and suddenly you're kind of swept away and you're caught up and you're into the God zone. It also, as a speaker, if you're looking really in people's faces, you'll notice if you're losing the group, if you're boring them. Or it also lets you know it, when you're getting to your big point, it gives you the opportunity to do things to re-engage everybody. This also, here's another little tip for those of you who, uh, you, you women who are married to a guy or going to be married, is you only have 60 seconds of talk when you can assume he's listening to you. After that, you must do re-engagement exercises. Yes? Anybody here been married for more than five years? If you are married for more than five years, you have learned that your husband only can concentrate in small bursts, and you must re-engage. means it has to be a little interactive. Did you, you heard what I just said, right? Uh, things like that. And, of course, we can master the skill of tape recording back the last fragments of what we just heard. That doesn't mean that we were listening to you. It just means we, we had caught the last couple of words. But the point is that you, you can re-engage people to get them back into the game. But you'll only know that if you're feeling the mood of the room, if, you, if, you are, if people are really with you and you are really with them. And you'll never know that if you aren't looking at their faces and if they aren't looking at you. All right, number six. There is a dreadful, dreadful temptation, especially among people who take the Bible seriously, to allow the dogmatics teachers, the dogmaticians, to hijack the driver's seat of the bus and where they want you so mindful of doctrine that whatever it is that you're going to say will line up with the denominational confessional statements or the, the official um, doctrinal line that you're supposed to hew. And that's a completely understandable tendency, but I think it has a lot of danger. Your job is not to um, decide on what you're going to say and then go find a biblical text to hang it on as a pretext. Then it's not a text anymore. It's a pretext. I would like to put out to you the importance of letting exegesis be the queen. Uh, exegesis is a complicated word that means that listening to the word first as though your mind were a blank slate and starting from nothing and just saying, God, fill me up, what's in here, and drill all the way down, and then you see what comes up the, the drill, the bore shaft, and then you, you have heard that. The other doctrinal writings that other Christians have contributed can help you organize what you've got, but God must speak first before any human being, and that includes Calvin and Melanchthon and Luther and all of the other great heroes of the Protestant church who've gone before us. They come in second place at best, but God's word must come first, must first listen to the word. Let it challenge you, let it thrill you, let it maybe sometimes puzzle you. Go at it over and over, read more, study more, pray more for revelation, and let that be your starting point so that you're not reading stuff, even good doctrinal stuff, into the text, but you're letting it come out 
and you're just using the confessional documents and your, the belief structure of your tribe to help you organize what it is that you are going to lay out for people and perhaps help touch uh, some contextual points around it. That's number six. Number seven, how are we doing for time here? Okay, about 15 minutes to go. Number seven is uh, when you snuggled in your mother's arm and lap, can you still remember that long ago? And it was evening and the house was starting to quiet down. And she's warm and you could smell her mother smell. And you felt very safe and secure. And you said, Mom, read me an essay. No, you didn't. You didn't say that at all. You said to her, Mom, could we read some P&L statements together? No, you didn't. You didn't say that at all. You said to her, Mom, tell me a story. We are all hardwired for stories. We tolerate the essays. You're tolerating me right now because it's a lecture, and you're tolerating me, and I'm so grateful that you would blow an hour of your day to tolerate me. Maybe there will be something in it. But essays and lectures can devolve into abstractions, which gets so tedious so fast. And that's one of the horrible weaknesses as I would read student sermons over and over and uh, try not to shriek and gag at them. They were one abstraction after another, meaning so well. You can talk about principles and stack them up one paragraph after another, and there's no humanity in it. There's no taste. There's, no, there's, there's nothing... There's no people in it. It's, they're just abstractions. You can even do that meaning well to God, where you stack up the metaphors to the point where they have no meaning anymore. Oh, God is our rock. God is your refuge. He is your fortress. He is the light of your world. He is uh, the light shining in the darkness. Your Lord is water in a thirsty desert. Your Lord, and you know, you can, that, that sounds real good. You've probably heard them like that, maybe even said them like that. But what you're doing is you're cheapening every metaphor that you've thrown out there until the people are gagging, like, enough. Nothing, it's just talk now. Nothing sinks in. If you are going to say, God is my fortress, if you're going to speak on Psalm 46, then let then construct your talk around fear and construct your talk around security and deep dive into what it means to be in God's fort. How secure you can feel when you are behind walls that thick that the fiery darts of Satan cannot get at you. You know, stick with, stick with one thing and then tell stories about it. People want to hear stories. That's what they remember. In fact, didn't you say that just about 45 minutes ago? You, have, you had no idea what I said in the tweener times, but you remember the beer and the gambling from yesterday? That you said it, I hope, as a joke, but you also spoke the truth. <laughs> you were serious. That is all you remember. <laughs> Tell something that's funny. Start with where people are. I hate it when people jump right into doctrinal abstractions the minute you sit down. Start where they are. Tell them some stories about their life. Show that you're a living, breathing human being. And, and go from the known to the unknown. If you want to 
bring about, if you have a change agenda of something you want to change, you're with them. You're one of them. You are not talking downhill. It's, it's us. We're in this together. And the power of stories. Man, today, more than ever, um, if you are 40 or younger, your whole brain processing is built around video. Um, some of us older people groan and think, ah, a young generation can't spell anymore and they can't add neither and they're all going to hell. And, you're, and if, you're 20, if you're 21, you're thinking, why should I need to add? Everything I need is right here. Why should I bust my brain over long division when I can have the answer? It's right here. And honestly, it's because story has much greater impact on, on being memorable and staying with people. If you watch the great black preachers in America, they're all great storytellers. Our greatest presidents have, been, have gotten to their office and used their office as storytellers. Ronald Reagan was a tremendous storyteller. He had a plaque on his office, for instance, and he loved saying this in his public speeches. He says, there, there is no limit to how much you can get done if you don't mind who gets the credit. Uh, the greatest storyteller ever to sit in the Oval Office was Abraham Lincoln. He just had a story for every occasion, and I hope you become story magnets. Do whatever you have to do to collect them and save them. Somebody, after uh, one of the battles in the so I'm in Alabama right now, in the War of the Northern Aggression. <laughs> a battle that went very poorly for the Union. Somebody asked Abraham Lincoln, how are you doing, Mr. President? And he said, well, well, as the farmer said right after he fell off his horse, I'm too big to cry, but it hurts too much to laugh. Isn't that a great little, little line? He was full of stuff like that. It, people learn by analogies. They learn by sideways talk, and, they, and it jumps over. And if you think of comparisons, if you make the Bible stories come alive and make them seem real, not weird stories in black and white that happened long ago so remotely it has no connection, but help those people. Help Sarah in her infertility, the pain of infertility. If you're going to talk about Abraham and Sarah... Listen to women who are infertile, and men too, and get their pain in you, how it hurts to have empty arms. You can't talk about Sarah. You do not dare criticize Sarah's laughter at the Lord until you have empathized with her pain of empty arms all that long time. So that's the, that's the power of story. Number eight, uh, and this is something I have learned uh, primarily from black people. Uh, whom, who's, who have changed my congregation dramatically and made it what it is today and whose ability at evangelism and fellowship ministries and music I have greatly come to admire and try to imitate when I can. Uh, a skill many white people have lost is the skill of improvisation and spontaneity. At the time of the great musician Johann Sebastian Bach, every great musician... In, well, I shouldn't say every great one. If you wanted a job, a full-time job playing music from one of the uh, nobility, one of the patrons, you had to be able to improvise. In fact, to get his job at the court at Weimar, Luther, uh, Luther, uh, Bach had to, uh, they gave him a fugue theme 
They got him started. Here's your, here's your theme. Now invent a fugue around this and do it right now. And he actually was so good at improvisation, he could make it up on the fly. Now, by, the, by improvisation and spontaneity, I don't mean that you wing it to cover up for your lack of preparation. What I mean is this, what I believe you will find, this has been my experience, and I suggest as you do it um, week after week, it will be your experience too. You work really hard leading up to it. I, my, one of the costs of being married to me is that my wife never goes anywhere on Saturday night unless she takes herself, and most women don't like going places by themselves. Because I, I don't go out on Saturday night. That, that is when I am getting stoked and I'm building up a fire in the boiler. And I want to go to bed with my mind racing and I want to wake up with that. That's the only thing in my head when I wake up on Sunday morning and it's racing. And I jam as much coffee into myself as I can hold and, and, and I go. But as hard as I have worked in the days and especially the day leading up to it, when I get there and talk to real people, see their faces, and I know the stories behind them, I know what's going on in their lives, suddenly three times as much material occurs to me at that moment. That's not an accident. You never can concentrate as fully and with your heart into it as when you're actually with people. And stuff you struggled with the day before all of a sudden opens up you might have struggled, man, I need a story or an illustration to, to go with this point. And the one you came up with was lame. And I thought, well, it's better a lame one than nothing at all. But when I see you, I remember the times when you and I were sitting in the hospital room with your son getting his stomach pumped because he had just taken a belly full of drugs, trying to commit suicide. And suddenly I remember what you need. You will think of things at five times the rate on Sunday as you did on Saturday. And if you give yourself permission and train yourself in the skill of being able to adjust on the fly, your stories will be way better. You will have insights. Stuff will occur to you. It'll be coming to you. You don't know, where did that come from? I'm, I'm a Lutheran. I'm not, not very Pentecostal at all, but I, I, they're onto something. The Pentecostals are onto something that the Spirit does shape and guide you in ways that seem not so linear all the time, and they're emotional and spirit-driven, and you let yourself get steered in that way. If that's what the Spirit has got for you, let it out. But if you are so locked into your printed manuscript, you dare not let go, or you might be lost and sunk and not able to go anywhere. But if you're just talking to people as though, if you're not preaching, this is why I, hate, I don't like the word preaching, if you're not preaching, if you're just talking with your friends, you will probably have greater freedom to customize what you're saying when suddenly a way better illustration occurs to you on the fly. And you can go with that, and you'll probably deliver that with a lot more emotion and juice. I'm going to do something that's hard to do, and that's I'm going to simply bail on what I was going to say there. So you only got eight theses, sorry. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. 
We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.